1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, I mentioned earlier the question about waiting. And so I asked the question, how, how well do you wait? Are you the person that is constantly checking the tracking updates with Australia Post? Thinking, how is it possible my order is still at processing? Surely it should be in transit by now at the very least. Are you the frustrated waiter, wondering if you should contact someone to get things moving? Or do you take the other extreme and order things online, only to be caught completely by surprise when the delivery man arrives with a parcel that you've forgotten you even ordered? The absent waiter, not really waiting at all. Or do you take the third option? Are you the person who orders something specific to meet a need, checks the estimated date of delivery, and then sets about preparing for the parcel to arrive? Making room in the house or wardrobe, thinking about how you'll use the item you've ordered, patiently looking forward to being able to experience it. Which are you? Well, whether you're an enthusiastic online shopper or not, you are someone who is waiting. The human race has been waiting for a very long time. Ever since humanity rebelled against the Creator God in the Garden of Eden, causing a separation between the perfect and holy God and His sinful, unclean creatures, humanity was waiting for a way back into right relationship with Him, waiting to return to Eden as JR has reminded us in through the Leviticus series, waiting to be welcomed back into the family of God. The first part of that wait obviously is over. The promised Messiah has come. Jesus has fulfilled all that was promised, and the way back is now secure. Praise God. But still, God's people wait for the final completion. And if you are a Christian, our passage today gives us helpful guidance about how we can continue to wait, how we can actively wait, as the title of the sermon suggests this morning. Guidance on how to avoid being the frustrated waiter or the absent waiter, rather being an active and prepared waiter as we live lives set apart for God as children of God in anticipation of Christ's return. Before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have not left us without a way of understanding who you are. And God, this morning as we look at these three short verses, we pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. We're thankful that you've retained your word for us and we pray that we would go to it regularly and we would be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. All right, well, I'm going to help us work through our passage using four headings, like the calling of a race. Let's see if this works. There we go. Take your marks or get ready. Get set. Don't go and go. Like every good race involving children, there is always the fake start call, isn't there? Kids, you know what I mean? Ready, set, bananas! Ready, set, go Anna's! Ready, set, go! In a race, in order to get to go, you first need to work through all of the other calls. Each stage requires the one before it. And our passage today works in a similar way. The call of go in a race obviously means the race is on. In our passage this morning, that's living out 
our hope-filled lives as obedient children in verse 14. Being holy as God who calls us is holy. Holy. The stage before that in a race is that tense moment when the caller says, get set. In this moment, the athlete is actively waiting. Nerves raging, muscles tense, ready to spring. Not going anywhere just yet, but very much active. In our passage this morning, this is setting our hope fully on the grace of God. And we'll spend a decent amount of time looking through what we see there. And in order to get set, in order for the Christian to set fully his or her hope, in order to actively wait, Peter provides two preparation actions. Take your mark or get ready. And that's preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. And while it's a little bit out of order, I think the best way to explain the take your marks and the go, so the, the, the front and the end, is to start at that moment of active waiting, the get set stage. So our order will be more like this. Get set, take your marks. Don't go, go. I'll use the pictures, so or at least we can remember what, what we're up to. I think this is the best way we can understand our passage because of the conjunction at the start. You know that the conjunction is a connecting word. And in this week, uh, uh, that's the word therefore. And I think, as I've read through 1 Peter, I'm going to be needing to talk about a conjunction in almost every sermon. As, um, as, as the apostle builds his carefully crafted letter, sharing his message of hope the way that he does. We've seen it already in the sermons before. And so today, in order to understand what God is saying in our passage here, we have to keep an eye on what has gone before in the preceding 12 verses. In fact, it makes all the difference, which I hope will become clear. So, get set. Let's first read from verse 13. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed as you've read through 1 Peter, but this is actually the first imperative, the first command in the letter so far. Before it, in order to prepare for this stage, Peter has been describing in great detail all that God has done for his elect, describing the living hope that we have in verse 3 and that we've sung about this morning. You might recall from our first sermon in 1 Peter that after he described the work of the triune God in calling his elect, the readers of his letter, and us, Peter joyfully burst out with the declaration, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he went on in one big sentence, at least in the Greek, to explain the Christian life and this great hope that he was celebrating. This is a hope that we too can enjoy. In fact, it's a hope we are called to enjoy incredibly as we await the final revelation of Jesus. But I acknowledge that it can be hard. It can be hard to be hopeful at times, can't it? We look around the world and we see such tragedy and sadness. We look at our own lives and we see difficult and disappointment. Unmet dreams of achievements, frustrations from our own poor decisions or from expectations of others that are dashed. In our church, I know the mood is heavy as today we farewell two beloved families of our, of our church. We can hear a call like this to set your hope and find ourselves drifting off. Ah, hope is for others. That's not for me. My life, my circumstances, the world, they're all too difficult and messed up. There is no hope. Or if there is, 
well, it should jolly well get here soon. Or perhaps you simply hear the command and despair. In light of all you're going through, in light of the difficulty of your circumstances, you might be thinking, I can't muster being hopeful. I certainly can't get anywhere close to absolute, perfect hope. I'm hard-pressed even getting here to church this morning. It's too hard. I need an easier task. Brother, sister, if that is you today, please stay with me. Don't drift off. This is exactly what the therefore in our passage is there for. Don't forget what Peter has already described in the 12 verses before this. This is not an empty command from an ivory tower. God expecting the impossible while offering nothing to help. No, this is a call to look to him as the faithful one who graciously provides you with hope and calls you to rest in him. As I mentioned, Peter has already described this hope as a living hope that Christians have been born into now. We are chosen by God to be his own, in verse 1. We are set apart by the work of the Spirit, verse 2. We are granted us, we are, it, it, this work that we are born into grants us the gift of faith, verse 5. Not by achievement of our own, but by an act of great mercy, verse 3. According to God's own plan, verse 2. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 3. Providing cleansing in Christ from our sin that separates us from God, verse 2. And providing an eternal and unfading inheritance given and guarded by faith, which itself is a gift and is kept for you by God's own power. Verse 5. This, this is why we can set our hope fully on the cross. Sorry, fully on the future reality of God's promised grace. Because of the cross, because of the fulfilled promises of grace that have gone before, which we saw in verses 10 to 12. Promises that were made manifest, made visible, made clear, evidenced in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This hope is not the creating of a feeling from within yourself. It is not conjuring up enough faith. It is not understanding enough facts. Not even being able to live the right way, which we'll explore later. The presence of hope is not some kind of happiness drug that you take to wash the blues away. It's not something that removes us from the trials of life. Peter has made clear in verses 6 to 7 that we will have trials. And Jesus himself said we will have trials. In John 16, 32 to 33, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. This is Jesus speaking. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Speaking to his disciples. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trials. But take heart. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Now, this hope that Peter is talking about comes from a knowledge that this world is not our home. We are exiles journeying through this time with the understanding that we are on our way to an eternal inheritance when the task is finished and Jesus Christ is finally revealed in glory. It is a hope that when we stand before the Father, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master from Matthew 25, 21. And this, this is what we understand as covenant theology at work. We have hope not, not because we have achieved righteousness ourselves, perfect adherence to God's law through the covenant of, of works that we see set up right from the start of creation. 
perfect adherence to God's law is unattainable by us. But we have hope because we have obtained the outcome of our faith as an act of grace through the gift of faith. It is because of God's grace that we can have hope now with Christ's own righteousness imputed to us, his righteousness taken to be our own as though we're clothed in Christ's own righteousness. This was God's plan in establishing his covenant of grace. A covenant with his elect people that was foreshadowed and pointed to by the prophets as they waited, verses 10 to 12, and was then established by Christ's life and his death on the cross, fulfilling both the requirements of the covenant of works. Jesus fulfilled them all. He didn't fail. And fulfilling the consequences of our inability to do so ourselves becoming the just and the justifier, as we see in Romans. And it is because of this, it is because of God's grace that we can continue to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ is again revealed. As John Piper puts it in looking at these verses, Christianity is first God graciously, freely acting to save his people. And second, man hoping fully in that grace. That's the essence of Christianity. And in this hope, we wait as we endure the ups and downs of this life. But, but it is not an idle waiting. It's not the forgetting the parcel is arriving. It is active waiting. It is not a hope we simply rest in and do nothing with or even forget about and move on from living our best life now. Now, as much as it is not a despairing, frustrated hope, it is not a passive hope either. There are things we are called to do to stir up this hope in God's grace and to have our minds fully focused on it. And that is what we set out in the early, we see set out in the earlier parts of verse 13. So now, Now we can go back to explore what the man or woman of God can do to help stir up this hope, to tick your marks at the starting line. And so let's go back to this first stage. Take your marks. Reading from verse 13, but in the gap that we left before. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope. I think recognizing that holy living, the the go of our passage that we get to in verse 14, requires determination. Recognizing that that does. Peter describes two ways. Two relatively simple, really, ways. Although hard to play out. For the man or, or woman of God to ready their mind. Two similar but different states of mind. Helpful for setting our hope on God's revealed grace. And then to live it out. And the first, as we see there, is preparing your minds for action. This is actually a word picture. It's translated in the ESV as preparing your minds for action. But literally, it is having girded up the loins of your mind. Get the picture? (laughs) Well, you'd you'd be forgiven, I think, for not really recognizing this turn of phrase off the cuff. Though we did take a look at the idea some time ago when we were preaching through 1 Kings. The people of first century Israel and the the people amongst the dispersion to whom this letter was originally addressed wore their clothes a little differently to us. Kids, do you know what people might have been wearing around the time that this letter was written? Yeah, Beck? Robes, yeah. What might they have looked like? Don't know? Like dresses, yeah. Basically, that's right. It's, it's called a tunic. And basically, it was a giant shirt. A really long shirt worn from our shoulders, perhaps one shoulder or both shoulders, depending on where you're from, to the knee or even to the ankle at times if you were at rest or if it was more ceremonial occasion. Around this tunic was often a belt or what's known as a girdle. And to gird literally means to encircle. Like a belt encircles your waist. So a girdle. In fact, it's the same as girt from our national anthem. Our home is girt by sea, surrounded by sea. Girt, gird. I think girt's older than gird. Not sure. Yeah, words change. 
but they're both the same thing, surrounded, encircled. Now, over the tunic, over our big shirt, a cloak would often be worn, unless you were too poor to own a cloak. And we've seen through Matthew, remember, that the cloak was the thing that we, you know, they might have used as a, as a blanket when they were sleeping and, and was the thing that people would take as, as payment for things if you, if you couldn't pay up on your debts. But you weren't allowed to take the tunic or you'd be naked. So, obviously, wearing clothing like this would make movement in tasks like laboring, running, and certainly battle quite difficult. So to get around this difficulty, the person would gird their loins. The loins being the area around the hips, above the legs, but below the waist, in this sort of zone. So they would pull the long flowing ends of the tunic together, bringing them forward, then they would tuck them back through, and then tuck them up into their belt, or tie them together. Basically making a pair of giant nappy shorts. (laughs) And here's something of a visual from the art of manliness. Something along those lines, anyway. Now, while the mind clearly does not have any loins, the wordplay from the image of girding up would have been easily understood. Gird or girding the loins in preparation for work is is referenced at various times in the Old Testament. For example, God directed Jeremiah the prophet to gird his loins when he was sent to proclaim difficult judgments on Israel. And we translate that, dress yourself for work. The 1 Kings passage I said earlier from 1846 is a reference to Elijah who girded his garment when he ran before Ahab back to Jezreel after Yahweh's dramatic victory on Mount Carmel. He ran in front of a chariot because he'd got his robes out of the way. Elisha directs Gehazi to do a similar thing when he's to run to the Shumanite woman. And the woman of virtue in Proverbs 31, 13, girds her loins to prepare for her hard work as well. And of course, Peter wasn't the first person to use the term in describing the Christian life either. Jesus himself used it um, describing how his disciples were to remain ready, like men waiting for their master to return. Jesus said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That's from Luke 12, 35. So if we can't literally pull our robes up around our ears, what does it look like to gird the loins of our mind, to prepare our minds for action? Well, just like the worker, runner or soldier, we will need to know our task and our purpose, and then we prepare ourselves for that task or purpose. That's the image. Preparing our minds for what we must do. And the task is, as we've just explored, to set our hope fully on the grace of God. God's merciful gift of salvation through faith, prophesied about through the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus and now revealed in Christ, as explained by the New Testament apostles and writers of the Scripture. So, kids... Where do we go to explore and understand God's salvation for us? The big plan that he has. You guys have answered all the questions so far. Anyone else? Where do we go? Where do we go to understand God's big salvation plan? Eden. The Bible. Exactly. God's word. God has revealed that. And church helps us do that. Exactly. We go to to God's word at church. We help understand each other. Help each other understand. And it helps us understand each other. That's right. So in practice, a mind that will be prepared or girded for action is a mind that is properly fed by the Word of God. In fact, this is affirmed by Paul as well in his letter to the Romans, where he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15 verse 4. Brothers and sisters, devote your attentions to the Word of God. Spend time seeking to understand it. Mine it for the gold that awaits within those precious pages. Allow God's Word to encourage and challenge you, shape you, mold you, so that your mind is ready for action. When things come, you draw on Scripture and you can respond ready for action.
So there are no long flowing robes dangling in the way to trip you up. Worldly wisdom or distractions that seek to replace the true hope that we have in God with temporary, wispy hopes, fake hopes that pretend to be hope. And I think this is why Peter's attention then turns to the second preparation state of mind. And that is being sober-minded. A couple of weeks ago, I knew that my Qantas credit voucher was expiring. 31st of December, 2023, just like everyone else's. The day was drawing near. I had a meeting to attend in Sydney in March, so I went ahead and booked on some sail fares. Directly afterwards, I, you know, transaction was completed, I clicked through to the Qantas homepage, and something on the scrolling advertising caught my eye. Double points offer if you use your flight credit within a stated travel window. Register and book now. I had just booked, but I had not registered. Now, as some of you are aware, I'm the kind of guy that does not like to miss out on the free stuff. The opportunities to value add to a purchase, they, they, they just ring for me. And so I was, sillyly, pretty frustrated. I registered anyway, seconds after booking. I read the terms, hoping I'd not missed out. I'm pretty sure I've missed out, but I will have to wait till March to really know if they land after I travel. In my sin, I immediately started to go into my own little personal world of frustration at my desk at work. But praise God, I'd been meditating on this passage. And this particular verse came to mind. Be sober-minded, Josh. I was going to miss out on a few hundred frequent flyer points. I don't even know what they're worth. They're probably a few bucks. But the impact of me being frustrated for some time, not being able to focus during my work hours, would be far more costly. So, thankfully, it doesn't always work, but thankfully, I was able to put my frustration aside and move on with my day. Why, why, do we why, do I, why do I respond like this at the very least? I don't know, maybe you respond to this in different ways, but why do we respond when things don't appear to be working out for, in our favour? Why do we respond like that? Well, for one, I think this passage shows us that it's, not because of a, it's because, rather, of a mixed focus for our hope. My being impacted enough to become frustrated by the loss of frequent flyer points means there is still some work to do in my fixing my hope on God. But also, I think it's because we continue to be impacted by sin. I know God has saved me through Christ. But this process of refining my mind, helping me act appropriately, this process will be an ongoing process as we seek, as I seek, to strive for holiness as we look forward to glory, as we see in this passage. So how do we work to avoid it? How do we set our hope fully on the grace of God? By being sober-minded. Now again, sober-minded tends to produce a fairly straightforward and reasonable picture in our minds. Take it easy on the drink. Or maybe we might think about staying away from illicit substances or drugs that addle our mind. And these are both clear, easy vices that Christians have been warned away from for many years. And which, for the most part, continues to be good, godly wisdom. The Proverbs warn against the use of alcohol in excess. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. I'm sure Brad sees that plenty when he's in, well, not in GDs anymore, but sees the consequences of them. Whoever is led astray by these things is not wise. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Well, Proverbs 23, 19. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And how's this for a proverb portraying Australian drinking culture? Proverbs 23, 29 to 35. Who has woe? 
Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go and try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. There's plenty of people in Australia that live that every day. Drunkenness, of course, also shows up in the New Testament lists of works of sin or the flesh. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 or Galatians 5.21. And Paul warns off getting drunk with wine, but rather being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. The qualifications for elders and deacons include not being drunkards, addicted to much wine in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And older women in Titus 2 verse 3 are similarly warned to be good examples in how they drink, not being slaves to much wine. Older men are told to be sober-minded, like we see in our passage today. Now, this is an aside, but I want to take the opportunity here just to point out that the Bible does not say categorically that drinking alcohol is wrong. But I appreciate that there are cultural Christian practices and wisdom that have made the consumption of alcohol something that does prick some of our consciences. And 1 Corinthians 9 certainly calls us to love one another in this and to give up our rights at times and refrain from consuming alcohol if it might cause our brother or sister to stumble. It's an easy thing for us to do. It's also a countercultural thing for us to do. And as I said, there is of course good wisdom in avoiding alcohol altogether if it would or does cause you to stumble, as that would clearly not be remaining sober-minded. And perhaps something to be conscious of Uh, with New Year's Eve celebrations tonight. But Peter is not at least exclusively referring to avoiding intoxicating substances in our passage. He is again using a word picture, taking the image of what happens with excessive consumption of alcohol and using it to help us understand his point. We need to recognize that just as wine and beer and spirits, strong drink, intoxicate and cause us to lose focus and soundness of mind, so too can the cares of this life and the pressures of living in this world, particularly living counterculturally as exiles for Jesus. In order to allow the focus of our hope to be fixed fully on the grace of God, we must keep our minds and our judgments clear and be prepared to resist anything that might come along to deflect our gaze from the hope of Jesus' return. Peter, again, might have been remembering something that Jesus said to him and the other disciples, as recorded for us in Luke 21, 34 to 36. Jesus said, but watch yourselves and lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, the day when Christ comes again, comes upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. A good thing to be praying about. I think in short, being sober-minded is being self-controlled with our thinking, which thankfully is a fruit of the Spirit being worked in us from Galatians 5.22. So again, what might this look like in our lives? Well, it could mean, could mean lots of different things. Could mean being careful of how you deal with losing frequent fly points. But being sober-minded could also mean weighing information that you receive, not being immediately swayed from what you know is true, when new and seemingly convincing information is brought to your attention through your life. Allowing that information, allowing all information to be filtered with what you know, particularly and ultimately testing that against Scripture not being a wave tossed to and fro, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. 
On the other hand, being sober-minded could mean being teachable. Not staying fixated on a thought or belief or practice that we have held, even for many years, when God's truth in his word shows us that our belief or our practice in living out that belief should change. Sober-minded allows us to be teachable and to actually appropriately move our thinking. And what about impersonal relationships? Well, I think being sober-minded would mean avoiding drawing assumptions and guessing what other people are thinking or feeling with just maybe one little piece of information that we might receive or observe about them. How often do we do this? Particularly drawing negative conclusions about people. And then how often do we refuse to allow even future information to change the assumption? Even clarification from that person themselves. How often do we allow our earlier guess to weigh more heavily than later truth? How much harm has this caused? How much division? How much does this impact on our lived out hope? In all of these scenarios, allowing truth to speak, fixing our hope on the gospel, guarding your heart and mind from guessing and assuming motives of others, being sober-minded, will more readily ensure you're not hindered when you engage with one another in God-honoring and glorifying ways as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we live this way, together, encouraging one another to do likewise, our capacity to set our hope fully on the good news will only be strengthened. So take control of your thoughts. That's what 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says. Don't allow your circumstances to get to the point of becoming overwhelming. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you, have, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on things that are above. Prayerfully resist any temptation to believe that you will never get out of a situation you find yourself in. Trust what Scripture tells you, that even, in your present, even if your present situation is difficult, recognize your Father in heaven knows what you need before you do. And Jesus himself tells you, do not worry. Matthew 6, 25-34. And be encouraged by Peter's exhortation in verse 8, that while you do not see him, still you believe. Press into that. Trust that you will be made whole, made new when Jesus is finally revealed. And even if change does not happen quickly here and now, be sober-minded and let that hope shape your thinking and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible in verse 8 because it is filled by the glory of God and not your circumstances. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ready, set. And so we move on to the second imperative or command of the passage, be holy. Let's read from verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, at first blush, just like setting our hope fully on the grace of God, this seems like an impossible task. As we've gone through the book of Leviticus over the last few months, as a church, we've seen how vital an understanding of the holiness of God is in understanding what it is to be one of his creatures or creations. God is a perfect being, far above us, and in a class all of his own. He is holy. As I mentioned earlier, humanity has been separated from perfect communion with God ever since we determined to live life our own way. God in his mercy in calling out Israel to be his chosen people, covenanted with them and created ceremonial laws, as we've seen in Leviticus, for them to be ceremonially clean and capable of being in the presence of God. 
mediated by the priests through the sacrificial system in the tabernacle and the temple. But Peter knows that this covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. He has walked with the Messiah, heard his teaching, seen how he fulfilled the Old Testament law and its requirements, witnessed him dying in his later life and ascension. In making this statement in verse 14, Peter does not intend to create a barrier to engagement with the great and merciful God that he has worked hard to joyfully describe in the last 12 verses. Rather, having set our hope fully on the grace of God, verses 14 to 16 provide an amazing promise to us as elect exiles. A promise that will result in the transformation of our lives as we await Christ's ultimate return. So, take your marks, get set, don't go. Don't go. Before Peter gives the positive command to be holy, there is what might be described as a negative direction. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go. Don't go there. But in saying this, Peter first reminds his readers and us, helpfully, that we are God's children. And I think, as I've reflected on this, this is all important. Just as Israel was in the Old, was in the Old Testament, we now are God's chosen people. We are called out to be his own by a father who loves us. Peter deliberately uses the phrase obedient children, which may also be translated literally as children of obedience, to remind all who are called into God's family that you are God's children. He has made it possible for your obedience to him. We are called to be holy for God. Our God is holy. We are called to be holy because God is holy. And being reminded that we are his children makes it clear that holiness is now part of our identity too. Remember in verse 2, we are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, sanctified or set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus. That's how Peter set out the opening few verses of this, of this passage or of this letter. In Christ, it is now who we are. We read this morning from Acts as well, recording Paul's teaching in a similar vein as he spoke to the people of Athens. God is the creator, giving all of mankind life and breath and everything. Humanity is God's offspring, his children, and as such, we ought to reflect him and his character. But we live in ignorance of that. And we once lived in ignorance of who God was. But now Jesus has been revealed to us through the regeneration of our hearts and our minds. This means we are no longer ignorant. We are able to repent of our lives lived apart from him. And of course, with this truth comes a warning that all must repent of life lived apart from him. God says we will not be able to live in opposition to him forever. Our choosing now to remain separated from God will result in his appropriate judgment of being separated from him forever. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this is a warning call to you. The assurance that God has given to Christians of the hope that we have in our salvation in Christ that you've been hearing about this morning is the same assurance given that God will return to judge the world in righteousness. That assurance is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is a historical fact. And it is how God has demonstrated the truth of all that he says. God is a holy God. There is none other like him. And there is none other to whom our allegiance should be given. It can be no plainer. Repent of your life lived for yourself and believe in the forgiveness won for you at the cross. A free gift, and you'll be saved. And Christian, just as you were called out, elected to be set apart for God the Father, for obedience to Jesus Christ, adopted in as a children of obedience, 
so do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see, when we become the children of God, a change is wrought within our hearts. We are led by the Spirit, and the holiness of God begins to take root. The blindness of our ignorance is taken away. We see our previous desires for the foolishness that they really are. We now know better. We are no longer ignorant of God's infinite worth. And with our new knowledge, with renewed vision, we begin to replace our desires one by one. Desires which were born out of our former ignorance with the truth of God. Transforming our lives, as Paul describes in Romans 12 verse 2, by the renewal of our minds as we fix our hope in God. What this means is that we need not feel defeated if we find ourselves falling back into our old desires at times. Resist that to be sure. Set your hope fully on the gospel. But remember that true believers seek to be obedient. And so recognizing that you are not being, well, I think that's actually a good sign. Recognizing we cannot fully be obedient on our own is a gift. And because we cannot be fully obedient now, Peter encourages us here to trust that God will continue to do a work in us that has and will make holiness possible. But it's not yet. It's now, but it's not yet. It's a process. If we think about obedient children, if my children don't listen to my instructions, kids, if you don't hear my instructions, can you obey what I want you to do? Shaking heads. I'm glad they recognize that. It doesn't matter how much they want to obey me. If they don't know what it is that I want them to do, well, they can't do it. As their father, I don't want my children to live in ignorance of what I know is best for them. My experience in life, my love for them, and my desire for their own success means I don't want to leave them in their ignorance. As they grow and learn more of what it looks like to live as part of our family... I don't want them to go back into immaturity. I want them to grow in their capacity to obey, to continue to grow in maturity. And so I ensure that they understand, they hear, they know how to do that. And so too does God for his children. So God calls his children to holiness, to be like him. Over time, as the trials and temptations of our lives are providentially placed before us as we walk with God, as we see in verses 6 and 7, we will see our former desires begin to fade into the past. Our desires may resist. They may rear up again as the dying monster that they are and attempt to bring us down. We may need to continue to fight them back with the truth of God's word, girding our minds and thinking with sober thought as we set our hope on the grace of God. But these desires are rightly described as being former. They no longer define us. And as our new desire to be holy is strengthened, the old desires are dethroned in our lives, which in turn results in greater obedience to God and nonconformity to the world. Praise God. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. So career, family, success, retirement, relaxation, all potentially good things. But put them on a pedestal like we did in our former ignorance and they can all become allurements, turning good things from God into lusts and desires that seek to draw us away from him as obedient children. So don't go. But go. Go, run the race, be holy, be holy in all your conduct. Leave no area of your life out. Be holy for God is holy. Holiness does not come from allowing your mind to just go into complacent mode. Not really thinking about what God says to us by his word. Just living in how we might be feeling at any one time. All that we have seen in our passage today and all that went before it in the preceding 12 verses directs us to the wholehearted, set-apart living for the God who graciously saves us that Peter 
directs us to. We are the children of God. Why would we go about in mediocre half mode? Why would we allow our minds to be dulled by idle scrolling, training our mind to be satisfied with three-minute bites of information before moving on to the next, binge-watching shows of nothingness to put our minds into a coma to avoid having to think about what's happening around us, allowing our weariness to be an excuse for sitting and doing nothing for just a few hours, then finally going to bed more exhausted than we started, rather than using even a single good hour of time for productive meditation in God's Word and then taking an early night. We continue in the now, but not yet. We continue to wait. We continue to be exiles, living in Australia, working as lawyers or teachers or accountants or administrators or any number of different things that we do. We live amongst an Australian culture that is more and more anti-Christian, more and more anti-God. Don't allow our cultural identity to dictate how we act, behave or think. Live counterculturally, as though we are from a world other than this one. Because we are. We are exiles. Be holy. As we wait, as exiles in a world that is hostile to its maker, and as a consequence very likely hostile to his people, as Jesus promised it would be in John 15, 20, our life is not intended to be one of withdrawal, to retreat into ease, or to give up in the face of adversity or failure, or just to be super protective and hide away. Our lives as Christians as children of God, are to be lived out loud in the world, demonstrating our set-apartness, living holy lives that are different to the culture around us, that rightly and appropriately reflect our Father, that point others to Him. So, in all our conduct, in every aspect of our lives and lifestyles, be holy. Pursue holiness in how you go to work, in how you use your time off. Pursue holiness in how you talk and in how you act. Pursue holiness in how you think and where you place your focus. Pursue holiness in how we parent, in how we love and care for our spouse, in how we choose and consider a spouse. Pursue holiness in what we watch, in what we read, in what we view, and in what we play. Pursue holiness when we are well or when we are sick, when we have much or when we have little. Pursue holiness when we gather together as church, as we prepare to gather together as church, and as we pursue and pursue holiness right through the week as we scatter. Church, take your marks. Seek out God's truth and allow your minds to be changed by it. Get set with your hope fully focused on the grace of God and go live obediently to Him. Set apart for God's purposes, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, what a joy it is to know that you have saved us, that you have made it possible for us to be your children. You have set us apart for holiness. God, would you shape and change us as we live this life for you? And God, as we sing now, as we respond to your word further in prayer, would you settle this word in our hearts? Would you help us to see where we should change? Would you help us to see the encouragement that it is to be your people? And God, would we truly live lives that are holy because you, God, are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.